0: In this episode of the Project Mindfulness Podcast, we talk about mindfulness and psychotherapy. Can we fully heal from our traumas and awaken to the truth?
1: Honest and open to all religions, all traditions, all ages,
0: and all levels of experience.
1: Radically accessible, pragmatic,
0: and eye-opening. Simply for everyone. Welcome to the Project Mindfulness Podcast. We'll take you on a journey across the globe talk with other meditators about their practice the lessons they have learned and what they want the world to know good day and welcome this is episode 26 and i'm christian nateson thank you for joining us today i have a talk with robert beady robert is a member of the first wave of theravada buddhist teachers who brought the dharma from asia in the 1970s robert founded the portland insight meditation community where he is the guiding teacher He has a master's degree in environmental studies and master's in social work. Robert has extensive training in numerous Western therapies. This episode goes a bit deeper under our skin and proposes various questions like can we fully heal our trauma? What exactly is enlightenment? Do we really need a guide for our practice? And what can we do about the climate crisis? Robert Beattie um welcome to the podcast happy to talk to you today hi there i'm glad to be with you awesome so um robert um tell us a
1: bit about yourself who are you and and what do you do in life (laughs) oh my goodness well i'm the founder of the portland insight meditation center Mm. uh, in portland oregon and uh i've been teaching insight meditation here in portland since 1979 And I first encountered the Dharma in India in uh, 1971. I was traveling. I went overland. I'd lived in Europe for a couple of years, and I went overland to uh, India and Nepal to go trekking was the primary reason. And my dear girlfriend of seven years at that point uh, told me at that point that she didn't want to get married and live happily ever after when we got home, but she wanted to separate. And so I got very depressed and freaked out and codependent catastrophe and um, a lot of pain, really a lot of depression and anxiety. But I kept meeting other young people, travelers, and there were some of them that were kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And um, they would always say the same thing. Oh, we just came from this 10-day meditation course with a guy called Gowenka. And uh, so I was desperate even though I thought meditation was really the most stupid thing in the world. I mean, why would you go sit on your bottom for 10 days in India where there's so much to do and see and taste and so on? But I'm glad I did because I, I went and a few days into that, I had um, uh, a, a remarkable experience. My, my terrified thinking mind stopped. And I experienced what I now know to be just <laughs> just, just a normal human mind, <laughs> revolutionary at the time, because I was, I was then not in anguish. And uh, so at the end of that retreat, I said to my girlfriend, we, we finished our trip together before coming back, and I said to her, this is what I want to do with my life. But I had no idea how to, how to proceed with that and uh i came back i was living in canada i did a a master's in environmental studies because i was very concerned about the environmental collapse that i saw happening and there i ran into psychotherapy and that began the my really my life's professional work which is the synthesizing of meditation and psychotherapy and so that's what i've been doing in that realm i'm uh, i have two grown children who are 36 and 32, and a couple of grandsons. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm in pretty good, health, great health actually. I'm 71. And I still go, I love going skiing, and I ride my bicycle 12 miles each way to work and back when the weather's good. And I'm in uh, a really good marriage. Maybe finally, I'm in a really <laughs> good marriage. And, and uh, we're using that relationship as a vehicle for waking up further. That's
0: uh, incredible, Uh, especially when you talk about the fact that you um, were concerned about the environment and and we're talking about,
1: uh, well, a few years back, right? Um, It's not like- 50 years, almost 1971. Exactly. And uh, well, yeah, and the word environment, the, the concern with the environment hadn't even emerged yet, but I had lived for a year in Australia. I traveled in Southeast Asia. I'd lived for two years in Europe and traveled overland to India. And everywhere I looked, uh, the, the, the catastrophe was happening. Hmm. Uh, way back wow. then, one, one little piece that I remember, every year back in the 70s, something like 2% of the arable land, 2% of the cultivatable land in Nepal was being eroded by, uh, by weather. So they were losing way back then. That And now, of course, the glaciers are drying up. And then all of, I mean, we're in a very dire situation with this environmental crisis. And it, it's not new. It's been happening for a long time, but it's now becoming more apparent.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that's uh, one of the things that uh, stuck out for me. Another question that I had about that was you said that you went to this um, retreat and then you to- told your girlfriend back then about it. But was she, uh, like, in any way um, connected to spirituality, or was she uh, also wondering why you sit for so long on your buttocks?
1: <laughs> no, no, she went on the retreat with me. Ah, I see. And she uh, she got a, it's changed her life, too. We're ah. still very good friends. Uh, our lives amazing. parted, and, you know, we've done different things. But she really got it as well and became uh, somewhat um, – she got bitten by the Dharma. It didn't become her life's work and passion like mine, but uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can do a 10-day insight meditation retreat without it having a really big effect. Right. And the
0: uh, moment you really started to dig into that and, and practice more, was there a certain method or, or tradition that you connected to the most or that you connected to,
1: yeah, yeah my my first um my first encounter really with meditation was uh with this fellow goenka and there's still the the vipassana um, uh, tradition here Go, goenka's the uba kin goenka's teacher authorized for four westerners to teach one of them was ruth dennison who became my teacher for 40 years until she died four years ago. And, and another one of those four was Goenkaji. And so my first retreat was with Goenka and it was there. I learned that very um, focused uh, perspective on the Dharma. And then uh, some years later, I, I studied with Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and lots of the big names here in the States. Uh, but then I ultimately connected with Ruth who who taught me um, abroad four foundations of mindfulness approach, and so it's from the from the Theravada tradition, tradition which is the Buddhism of Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, partially Cambodia, which is the ancient tradition. It's the oldest extant tradition from the Buddha, and so that's been my lineage. That and Western psychotherapy would be another lineage. Um, <laughs> that uh that's that's provided plenty to work with with the um the four noble truths and the eightfold path being the foundation of a spiritual life right and so the psychotherapy you've
0: had like extensive training in in numerous western therapies um i I read like gestalt bioenergetics, biofeedback uh, a whole lot of them and Was it just curiosity that drove you to uh, train in all of these different Western therapies? Or what was the reason for all these different ones?
1: Well, I think the primary reason was always my own healing and my own waking up. And I've seen it um, significantly as a responsibility. If I was going to be making my living sitting with individuals and couples and families with the intention of helping them heal from psychological, emotional wounding and trauma, that I really should have an ongoing therapy relationship myself to be working with my own unfinished business. And so I, um, oh, I, I'm i so grateful for the, you know, I speak about Ruth Dennison, but I could also speak of four elders, in Westerners, uh, who, from different schools of psychotherapy, I spent years meeting with, I, meeting with once a week or once every two weeks. Uh, I went, one of my rela- I had one 12-year relationship in therapy until the fellow had a heart attack, wow. and then another one uh, on for uh, 13 years, and I started seeing the second one uh, once a week, and then it moved to once every two weeks, and then I went to once a month or so. But that was a profound relationship. Those, those people loved me. And they saw who I was. And they, they could help me grow in, in psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so I always was mixing that. I was always doing my sitting practice and developing my Dharma understanding. But the, the this self, this experience of a separate self... Um, the Dharma helps with, but those early wounds, uh, the Dharma, it really helps to have someone who can understand how to work with that early wounding and the psychological and emotional stuff. Right. Which, interestingly, over half of the teachers in the insight meditation world are psychotherapists. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's, there's some sort of connection going on there. <laughs> they're,
0: they're, they're like two hands washing each other. Right. It's um it maybe to say the Eastern and the Western coming together to uh, create. Yeah. That's very beautiful. I want to ask, after all these different therapies and, and working with these different people, could you say a person comes to a place where they are fully healed or where they can fully, um, you know, from a trauma or a deep wound, come to a place of real acceptance, like, is that possible? And, and if so, why or how? <laughs>
1: it, that's a really beautiful question. And you articulated, you continued articulating it and changed my answer.
0: <laughs>
1: um, I I think it's my experience that the, that the wounds of early childhood and the traumas that occur um are uh, indelible they are they're here for life your personality with its wounds is here for life however the trauma and angst around them can be changed can be the the, the energy emotional energy can be grieved and then mindfulness and concentration and the seven enlightenment factors can be developed such that the relationship to the separate self Is radically changed so that when when uh, when when life throws one of those very challenging curveballs when someone dies or you have a big loss or something um, all the normal all the predictable things that would come from one's neurotic self that'll all will all arise but it's much quieter and it's not dominant it's um, in the in the story of the Awakening of the Buddha, you know, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and Mara, the Buddhist Satan guy, uh, comes along and he, he tempts him with the the beautiful women and then uh, the anger, hatred, jealousy, the emotions, and then the responsibilities uh, and um, uh, doubt. And the Buddha responded really interestingly to, to Mara. He said, I see you Mara I see you and the ridgepole of this house is broken never again will this self be taken so seriously but then throughout his life in the canon there are stories of him saying I see you Mara I see you so his personality his 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 psychological and emotional challenges still happened but it would be kind of like well I see you. Now let's go, let's get down to business. Now, you know, I have responsibilities to do. I have, I have, I have loving and caring and being compassionate for people. Uh, I I don't, I don't need to muck around in this old regrets and so on because, uh, they don't have much power.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful.
1: Which leaves a person very human. There's another view, which is that a person transcends all this and that then they, they have no more, they have no more, uh, uh, sexual response to someone, or they never have a moment of anger or irritation. And maybe that's true, but it's not my experience.
0: Yeah. That, that's also something I, I I want to, um, move into more. Is is this, uh, the idea of, of enlightenment and what it means if someone is enlightened, it sometimes becomes almost this mystical idea of, of someone being completely free from uh, a, a, an ego or, or a self. But as you said, it, it could be true, but what you experience is that it's more of a dealing with the ego or the self. Is that right?
1: If we succeeded to get rid of our ego, we would be institutionalized. Right. the ego is an is a necessary structure which mediates between the unconscious and all the stuff that's going on and the present moment so uh, as I understand it what the Buddha taught is there's one in psychology it's called an object relations function there's one function that happens it's an ego function that Is the problem, and it's sakyaditi, wrong view, so that when an emotion happens, the mind says, "My emotion." When a thought happens, my thought, my fear, my loneliness, my my desire, my my I I me me mine mine, and that if that one little function is illuminated, then oh, it's an emotion. Oh, it's a thought. Oh, it's a desire. No big deal. I don't have to. I don't have to resist it or attach to it. I can just let it be. And that's the more uh, in the progress of insight in the development of consciousness. I think we become more and more adept at not being identified with whatever comes up. Right. The, the what do they call them, the four winds, the vicissitudes of life, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, happy, sad, sick, health, uh, that those come and go, but we're less and less blown out of the water when things don't go our way, because of course they don't go our way, because life is like that.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I had someone from the community uh, ask specifically about the therapy called EMDR. And she, uh, she asked if you think it's helpful for a lot more than working through trauma and why?
1: Do, do I think it's helpful for working with you more than trauma?
0: I don't know if that makes sense in the... A-
1: oh, it does. I've, uh, I don't know if I've got that in my bio there, but I've been doing EMDR for 15 years and, uh, Part of my that last therapist that I worked with I went to her because she was one of the national EMDR trainers and um, so I had been I had been working um, I have some abandonment issues from childhood and the the presumption that the person that I love will d- disappear it's an insecure attachment and I'd done all kinds of work on it i mean over over decades in meditation in therapy, and then I worked on it with e m d r and let me let me just see if i can simplify it e m d r is called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It should be called bilateral bilateral brain stimulation reprocessing because you can do it by tapping on someone's knees. You can do it by tapping on their hands. You can do it with sound. And the idea is that when trauma happens, which is a, a a challenging circumstance and the, the organism can't deal with it adequately, can't in, in, in as a human can't go to bed at night and go into REM sleep and process the information and then have the trauma go away Instead of that, it gets stuck. And uh the, the, the hypothesis they have is that it gets stuck in the amygdala, which is a little a little uh almond-shaped thing on the brainstem, which has to do with fight-flight and recognition of threat. So let's say one is 35, 50, 60 years old. And still, every time this something happens in life, it reminds one, I'm going to get left. I got left when the last time this happened or way back when I was abandoned. So then we we automatically go into fight flight. Meditation and particularly retreats will deal with a lot of that stuff over time. But this woman, Francine Shapiro, discovered that you could deal with it really fast. And so the practice is to... Remember the circumstance to, uh, to notice that there's a little feeling in the body, a trauma feeling in the body. And then you one way or another, you maybe you move your hand back and forth or you tap back and forth. And while the person is remembering the thoughts that happened then and the feeling it in the body and then the bilateral brain stimulation, things will start moving and memories. And, and so stuff will move through really fast. It's kind of like high-speed vipassana. In a way, and sometimes there will be crying, sometimes there will be anger, sometimes laughter, but often there are lots of memories really fast, and somehow or another, that then allows one to redecide, or for the organism to let go of that old tightly held belief, and have a more spacious uh, approach to things. So. Um, an experiment a person could try uh, would be if you're if you're very overwrought emotionally something if something really difficult is happening you could try just feeling into your body for where the sensations are and then just tap on one tap 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 on one knee and then the other knee or move your high, move your eyes back and forth and that alone can have quite an effect sometimes.
0: Wow! So it's just the the, the, the bodily sensation at that moment that does something to your uh, system.
1: It's the bodily, sen- it's mindfulness is, of course, the key ingredient. You're Mastery. bringing mindfulness, mindfulness and concentration uh, into the sensation in the body and the memories, and you're gonna kind of bring that all together, and then you're doing something that seems to help the brain let go of the tight place it, that it's stuck in. Hmm. It's, it's odd, I, I, I could confess. When EMDR first came out, I thought, I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's so, that's so hokey. I've been, I'm a meditation teacher. I've been in <laughs> therapy for 20 years. <laughs> and then, it, there came, I was a social worker then, and I needed continuing education credit. You know, you have to keep your, go get training so that you keep your credential. And so I went thinking, oh man, this would be a wasted weekend. <laughs> and then the first day I was sitting there and the guy sitting beside me, was, I didn't think he should be a therapist, actually, but we, <laughs> we partnered up, and over a very simple exercise, he started moving his hand back and forth across my face, and all of a sudden, these memories and thoughts started moving through, and I went, oh, my God, this is really interesting, but that's kind of been part of my history my whole life. There's this arrogance that, oh, I don't need anything, and then, boom, suddenly, I realized, oh, that's really important. We are kind of funny, aren't we? I mean, how how rigid and certain we can be about things until we then realize, oh my gosh, it's not like that at all. Yeah, absolutely. It,
0: it feels like constantly my brain is coming up with a, a sort of certainty. And then a few weeks later, it's it, it turns out that wasn't as certain as I thought it was. Right. Yeah, yeah it's- uh, Great,
1: that means your practice is working. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it was funny. When I um, uh, met my teacher, the, the, the thing that struck me as that it was working was that every week I felt like I was completely, I didn't know what I was doing. And, and that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was, it's very hard for um, the, the ego, the, the, the arrogant, I know it best. Uh, kind of voice yeah
1: there's a I I, there was a little one-liner once uh, I think it would make a great bumper sticker Uh, meditation is one embarrassment to the ego after another
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense and and uh, talking about um um the body and and trauma and and tension is there um like I'm, I'm super interested in this connection between the body and and the mind, and you have these different practices like uh, qigong, tai chi, yoga, you have all these different body movements and, and body uh, th- things to work with your body and that can loosen up parts of your mind or it feels like that. H- what is your experience with this connection between the body and the mind and how to utilize
1: that? I I think it's a miss, how do I say it? I think it's inaccurate to say there's a connection between the body and mind. I think it would be more accurate to say body slash mind, or body hyphen mind, or just body mind, that we can, like even in this moment, we can, like if you, if you were to feel your hand, just become aware of your hand from the inside, just oh that that's my hand or where you if you're sitting where your buttocks are pressing in the chair we can we could articulate oh well there's there's the contact there's the sensation and there's knowing it so one is mind and one is body but that's a that's an abstraction that in in reality isn't true it's just body mind it's just mind and body now we we can use it the the apparent Separation that very often when people are really um, struggling, confused, uh, well, they get, we get lost in thought. If, if one could ask, what are you feeling in your body right now? For instance, about an emotion. What are you feeling in your body? Because all emotions have a bioelectronic base. They all have a body base. Emotions don't happen in the mind; they happen in the mind-body, and uh, they they developed evolutionarily to help us survive. So, if uh, I remember years ago, Ramdas uh, spoke of the universities and the school system as the temple of the worship of the rational mind, and so we try to solve all problems with thinking, whereas it's often, like with emotions, it's much more helpful to, to shift into mindfulness. And then, so where am I feeling this emotion? Where does it exist in my body to let go of the thinking and then to, to kind of dive into the body sensations? And that's where some resolution might happen. Whereas it never happens if you just stay in the mind. There are other times when people are all caught up in the actual physical emotion and then shifting into thinking about it can be very helpful. So we make use of that apparent dichotomy. But really, it's one integrated process. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: But it seems, yeah, as you said, that we are um, disconnected from very young age, but as a separation between the body and the mind, like it seems, it seems separate. And I I think that's such a, for me, it took quite a long time to figure out what you said that there is no separation, but it it does seem like that. It seems very rigid sometimes that your mind is really thinking about things, and your body is, yeah, it's like this vehicle.
1: (laughs) That was, uh, I want to speak of my teacher Ruth Dennison for a moment. She, um, she was a dancer before she was a Dharma teacher. And uh, she, she, a woman named Charlotte Selver, who was German, uh, who, who did a lot of movement practices, she came and lived with Ruth and Henry in Hollywood for a while. And uh, then when, when Ruth um, began teaching, she, uh, she was here in the States, in California, and she saw that the students were restless all the time and moving. And she, it occurred to her, well, why don't, why don't I have them move mindfully? So there was, before there was sitting and walking meditation, but she started having people do quite specific, playful dance things and to dance with each other and to be aware of your hand moving, darling. Can, and, um, uh anyway she introduced movement and at first the other teachers were mocking her say i mean isn't that stupid we all know that you know you're just supposed to sit and walk uh but then if you look at what's happened now in the inside meditation world people do yoga on retreats and they do qigong and they they incorporate all kinds of practices because my you can be mindful doing anything and to be to, to, to do movement practices then allow or helps mindfulness move into daily life and it also can heal some of those old splits That um, you know I've, I've watched my two kids now uh, get it, go, go to adulthood and they spent a long time in school yeah train the mind train the mind and there was very little all right now let's let's let go of the mind and be in the body when do they do that maybe physical education maybe but uh so how many hours i mean it's it's vast how we train people to be in the mind
0: yeah yeah it's it's amazing and i think that that was also something that sometimes um i notice people who who work in an office all day and then they find it hard to meditate and it's like well, I mean, obviously it's hard to meditate because you are sitting the whole day at an office or you're sitting at a job and then you want to, you know, sit another hour or so uh, doing meditation and it makes so much sense to to get first into contact with the body as in aware contact of the body and and then move to to um uh, yeah, meditation and mindfulness. But what what about um uh, I mean, it just came up that like someone um said that they were they, they read something about, um, I think, mindfulness, and it said it was very rigid about what, what is mindfulness and what isn't mindfulness. And with talking with you, I noticed that you... Is it true that, that you can do almost every, anything mindfully? Is that, is that true or is that just uh, not true?
1: <laughs> mindfulness... Mindfulness is is the great miracle. I mean, in this moment, as we're speaking, something's happening that we take for granted, which is that we're conscious <laughs> right there's yes, yeah. there's something happening, and where does that come from? It doesn't I mean people say oh, it's from the brain uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but so. Consciousness exists. You know, a sperm and an egg come together and somehow or another, um, a baby's born and it has a kind of rudimentary consciousness. It can't think, it doesn't have an ego, but it's, it's conscious. It's, oh, something's hurting and it cries and so on. Uh, dogs have consciousness. Cows have consciousness. Humans have a particular capacity in consciousness, which is, To know that they know. So I could say in this moment, please become aware that you're seeing. And suddenly there's seeing, but there's also knowing of seeing. And that's what mind that's that is, and that's all mindfulness is. It's just being aware of what's happening. And so there's, uh, we can be mindful of, and this is right out of the Satipatthana Sutra, the four foundations of mindfulness. We can be mindful of uh, the body, of the body's positions, of its movements, of its putting on clothes, going to the toilet, driving the car, uh, chopping carrots, making love, changing the diapers. All of that can be done mindfully. So that's a huge, I mean, that was even, not all those details, but that was even specified at the very beginning. Right. And then, the every sense door the eye the ear the nose the tongue the feeling body and the mind every time they have a contact with their object it's either pleasant unpleasant or neutral or not determined yet we can be mindful of liking and disliking happens all day long it drives us through life and then going further into mind well, there's all the stories we tell ourselves, and all the moods, and all the, all the opinions, and the memory, like the past is a class of thoughts, and the future is a class of thoughts, and we can be mindful of those. And then there's the the fourth foundation of mindful non-phenomena. There's the five hindrances and the seven enlightenment factors and the four noble truths. So those are all experiences that are real, but they exist in mind, and there's and there's no reason with training that we can't be aware of them. We can know that's what's happening. So that kind of covers the waterfront. It's it's like, be mindful of something, stay awake. And then be mindful of you're sitting in meditation and then, oh, there's something else I want to be sure to mention. You're sitting in meditation and uh, the mind wanders off. And then it goes, la, 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 la. It's gone for a while maybe. And then, boink. Mindfulness pops on. You You're back. It's like yeah. <laughs> and um, it's my experience that I don't do that. That's the universe waking up. That's that's the mystery, the Buddha nature. Boink. It's awake again. And there's no predicting when it will be here and when it will go away. And we do. We practice creating the conditions for more of that. And it's been my experience in myself and others, that we can, in fact, become much more mindful. But I don't think it's because we're creating mindfulness. It's that we create the conditions for mindfulness to arise. But this other thing that I remember that I I think is, uh, it may be the thing that I teach most, particularly with beginners. Here at the Meditation Center, we have a lot of newcomers coming in. And I always say this, which is, it's really crucial the attitude that you hold toward meditation and what you think meditation is supposed to do is crucial and most people and a lot of what is taught in the meditation world believe that the purpose of meditation is to stop the mind that if you're meditating properly you will enter into a state of bliss there will be no thoughts you won't be suffering at all there'll be no pain and so they meditate for a day or two or three, and then they quit because I can't control my mind. Right. Well, I can't control my mind after 40-some years, it, and the reality is it's not my mind. It's the mind. Yeah. And so a much more useful approach is I'm going to meditate. And, uh, for instance, i have used mindfulness of breathing. I will use the breath as my home base, and I will do my best to stay with the breath as an actual sensation. And When the mind wanders, I'll be very gentle and notice, oh, wandering mind, or fear, or loneliness, or whatever it is, and then gently come back to the breath. But my real purpose is to accept it exactly as it is, not to change it. Right. And then I can be relaxed because, oh, uh, you know, my... Um, my child is somewhere on the other side of the planet and hasn't texted in a few days and I'm starting, to, and there's anxiety happening. Well, that's, that's not going to shut off. But, oh, there's that anxiety. Thank you for sharing. Back to the breath. We just we don't have to try to stop anything because everything is always arising and passing away. Is that why um, some, some say
0: that everything is perfect as it is?
1: Yes. uh, Yep. Which doesn't mean then we don't take responsibility and act politically. And, but in fact, when we drop back into the bigger picture, it's all okay because there's nobody here, Mm. (laughs) which is weird. (laughs) I got to admit it's weird, but.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, Coming from that to uh, one of your talks uh, where the central theme is uh, the Buddhist view of, environmentalism. And I, I'm, I'm just super interested in that topic because uh, right now it's, it's, it's happening. There's, there's a, I feel there's a lot happening in the change of perspective. People are either fighting it really hard to not change their perspective or they are changing and, and doing something about it. And it feels like a very crucial time for environmentalism and, and dealing with our environment. And so what um, what is something that you can give to to our listeners about this buddhist view of environmentalism right now in 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 this time Mm
1: -hmm. this is a really this is a very poignant question it's it's a poignant question here at pimc because this is a large community there's probably 800 people who are part of pimc and uh there's a, there's a call sometimes, let's be active. Let's be politically active. Let's do something. And, you know, we got to fight against those bad guys. And, and I've been very, um, very reticent to engage in that way. Um, so it's, it's been complicated. But, but here's, here's how I'm making sense of it. If I, if I act on a polarized basis against someone I'm the same old problem years ago I I, I'm Canadian by birth I became an American citizen in order to vote against Ronald Reagan and um, I lost (laughs) election I lost but I, I went to some rallies and I would I would try to speak and when I would say We must love Ronald Reagan. He is us. We're not separate. It doesn't mean we don't act to stop him, but to hate him is the same old problem. And it was not well received. It still isn't well received very often, except in certain circles. So I think the first order of business is to wake up enough, to have our practice developed enough that we can actually be calm and not freaked out at all. In fact, if we, ideally, to realize that there really isn't a problem, that everything's okay, the earth is perfectly safe, and the earth is a temporary phenomenon anyway, and we're all going to die anyway. The human species has come into being, and then it'll go out of being. And to be able to go into that ease where there isn't a problem and to rest there that's really important oh and also in that to be able to realize that oh i am i am this manifestation that comes out of the earth and i'm going to go back into the earth ronald um, donald trump is the same teresa may is the same we're all we're all these flowers that keep they come into being and then we we take each other very seriously we fight and and then so one could say to that well that's quite a cop-out what about those refugees that are being turned away at the border or what about what about all the harm that these people are doing so that's the other side of the coin in which from a place of love and compassion we realize well there really is harm happening here and then i ask myself the question what is the realm of influence?" where do I have influence, and what can I do there, lovingly, in order to protect people, to uh, to reduce suffering, to to work toward a better distribution of human wealth, or um, to stop torture? To what what can I what can I do where I can be effective? Because I know I can I can watch TV and they're doing this here they're doing that there it's another flood here it's a tornado there and i can blow myself out of the water and i can then be talking with people or texting and getting on social media and being in uproar to no avail it's it's serving no one so it's kind of a practical approach which is where can i be helpful and yeah. sometimes it's just donate some money, or sometimes it's sit down with my child and help them learn to read. Or um, my wife comes home from work really tired and maybe it's um, helping her to get to bed. Uh, and in I'm in this wonderful context here at the meditation center, that m- my my primary environmental action my primary world peace action, is running this meditation center and teaching people how to meditate so they can become peace. There's an old saying, uh, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. And so um, uh, funny, I keep thinking of this. One of my friends a long time ago, uh, worked on a Greenpeace boat out in the Pacific. And he said that the people on that boat were among the most violent and angry people he ever met and i i mean i've I've supported Greenpeace a long time, and I think they, they've done really good things, but it may not have been very good for, for at least in that circumstance. those people were probably not helping themselves very much, and maybe they weren't helping the cause of world peace very much because they were so unpeaceful. yeah I don't know does, does that make sense the, the, that makes the polarity sense. of that?
0: Yeah, I, I I I'm living in Berlin and in Berlin obviously um the 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 remains of the Second World War are very heartfelt. It's very uh, deep and uh, there there are numerous uh, uh memorials. Uh you know, there's on the streets there's these golden plates for the names of the Jewish people who lived in certain places and you see uh, a lot of messages uh, you know uh, nazis raus uh, nazis out and and they get more and more aggressive at a point where you read messages about uh, killing them or 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 you know uh, so, so violent and uh, i i understand where it comes from but i don't understand how it's not clear that once you get over a certain border of saying, you know, kill them or or fight them or be violent so that they must be stopped, how that is not in the same kind of energy that, you know, um, is the one that you are opposing. That That is something that I, I don't, um, I think it has to do a lot with uh, ju- justifying. You justify what you believe or what you do and say this is the right thing so whatever i do for the right thing has to be right it could yeah did
1: you did you watch the game of thrones i, I did not
0: i'm uh, i'm very out of the loop with the game of thrones
1: <laughs> well the last uh um uh, hang on what, what would i say um is it a spoiler <laughs> spoiler alert oh. this and you don't want to hear about the end of the game of thrones turn off your sound for about one minute <laughs> <laughs> in the last session this beautiful young uh queen figure who's been building up to be the queen of Westeros for years uh she she turns into a a hitler-like despot and she's uh hang on turn this off ah. she um uh, she, she massacres half a million people with her dragon, and then in the very last scene, essentially, her lover Jon Snow, the other hero, kills his lover because she's she's turned into this. She's uh, kill for peace. We're gonna mm. we'll take over the world and we'll finally drive out the darkness. And she studied the speeches of Hitler and other uh, despots a lot in order to be able to. And she was great. But you can see she was just... And that's the problem. We all have that tendency in us. And we're going to stop the violence by being violent.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it it makes a lot of sense what you said. I I feel the same way. And um, actually, uh, I I want to ask you something about um, humor in uh, spirituality, Uh, jumping from a, a very serious topic into maybe a more... Light topic like what is what is the purpose of humor and spirituality for for you and your uh, teaching i
1: i had a an intimate relationship uh some years ago so i was with this woman for for 13 years and she was very funny and one of the (laughs) one of the things she would say is life without a sense of humor just isn't very funny (laughs) And and life is crazy. And one of the ways to point it out is to, to to point out the lunacy, the 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 insanity of what our minds will do. And I use humor actually sometimes quite consciously uh, when giving a talk. I'll lay out some maybe a, a pretty heavy reality, like we're all going to die or something like, you know, something that has some real weightiness to it. And then what will pop to mind is something humorous and I'll have the room laughing and uh, it balances the energy somehow. And the message just goes right in under the humor. So uh, I just find it very, it's very natural for me. I've, I've uh, developed uh, the capacity to be humorous and, and, I mean, even when I'm by myself, pretty often I'll find something quite funny. That it's like, look at what this mind is doing now, right? <laughs> right here, yeah. Robert B.D., Meditation Master, et cetera, et cetera, and this is happening. How yeah. bizarre! Yeah, and
0: how do you do you balance sort of uh, humor and then compassion and 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 taking into account what other people might feel? Because I see, I see a lot of people attempting humor and also a lot of um, people who are into spirituality and still they manage to hurt people or still they manage to not get it out right in a certain way. It feels like an art form.
1: <laughs> it is an art form. You know, um, I think it helps to really be compassionate with people to, to not be trying to be compassionate, but to actually be compassionate. And then what what one says, people. What what I say still hurts people sometimes. And something I say at the at the uh, end of my retreats always uh, is: um, if during this retreat I have done or said anything that you felt hurt by, please come and tell me. Please let me know, because I too have a shadow, and I can say and do things that I. I, did, I had no idea they were hurtful. And I've had people, meh, well, more times than I remember, come up and say after, well, you said this thing, or we were in private conversation and you said or did this. And sometimes, sometimes I have no remembrance of it. And sometimes they completely misheard, and it was uh, some hypersensitivity on their part. But other times it's been my... Um, Ignorance or my, you know, my unconsciousness. So, and I, I also say, if I've, if I've taught anything which will lead into greater suffering rather than less suffering, then I hope it's just forgotten. Hmm. And if you've heard something like that, come and tell me, please. And people, people are very timid, you know, when they come and, well, I just, and there, it, it's another, it's a healing moment when I say, okay, tell me, I'll do my best to listen. And then when I actually listen, um, you know, I I carry a lot of father transference where people, you know, have their fathers projected on me. And so many of us wouldn't have thought to go to our father and say, you know, what you said there really hurt me. And to have the person carrying that transference say, whoa, you're right, I'm really sorry. I'll, I'll try to remember not to do that again. So th- those can be very important moments too. It's
0: very transparent and open. Uh, that's how it comes across when when you uh, talk and also share. It, it seems with humor the same thing that in a way it breaks open a certain area where maybe tension was, and you you break through that and open it up. Um, very very. Um, very cool. I, I, I try to use it in the same way. I I I'm still learning. <laughs> but um I do see the the purpose of humor and why it can, you know, it, it, it literally can help people uh de stress and also come out of a, a suffering, out of a sort of mental state of, of of seeing everything very black and then they laugh. And I mean laughing alone does something to your brain. It like sends a signal,
1: yeah. It's an it, I mean, I've never studied humor, but uh. it's an interesting thing. I don't think dogs have humor. <laughs> you know, it it's it's a it's an interesting, sophisticated something that happens for us that we have this. You know, you, sometimes you get laughing and you, you remember being a teenager laughing and you couldn't stop. That was really interesting.
0: Going from you teaching other people and and giving them the opportunity to be open and also talking about, you know, projecting um, transference, uh, your, your, your parent onto someone. Why is a personal relationship with a guide or a teacher important for our practice? <laughs> You're a
1: good interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> well, you succeed very well. That's a beautiful question. Um, one of the reasons that we... A spiritual reason why we enter into intimate relationships is that our partner uh, provides provocation for parts of ourselves that are otherwise invisible to come forward. And the same is true with a teacher that, um, I know I I learned I had Sufi training for some years and... uh, one of my Sufi teachers uh, said that the, his most significant role was seeing the beauty, uh, I think he said seeing the divine, seeing the beauty in his students that they couldn't see and that he, his admiration of them and pointing out their beauty, their compassion, their love, their wisdom, uh, allowed them to grow into it. So then, on, and the other one, where, where we, uh, where we project on the teacher, if the teacher is skillful and can realize it's not about them, but can hold a mirror up and say, "Oh, look, look what you're doing. Look what your conditioned mind is doing." Then it's an opportunity for tremendous growth because uh, because something that we didn't know uh, that something that we didn't know existed in us um is comes alive i'm thinking of an example i did uh, several years of training with a fellow called matt flickstein who's a former theravadan now really a non-dual teacher and we had a there was a circumstance where he had us teach a five minute talk and then uh he gave feedback and then the group gave feedback and when I did my little talk, I really blew it. It was one of those times that it just didn't, I forgot a whole critical piece. And it came off, not that I was aware of what the mind was doing, but that I was kind of whining. And his feedback was harsh. And then other people did harsh feedback, and I just collapsed. I, I, it just, I went into a really dark place. And it was so bad that I was I realized, I couldn't stay in there. I had to leave. It was just, I, I, it was, it was a real regression, you know? Mm. And, um, uh, that evening. Oh, and, and I, I actually called and I found I could get a taxi. I was, I was on the East coast. I had to fly home. I could change my flight. And I realized going into the evening session that I was going to ask him to talk. And if the conversation did not go well, that relationship was over. It's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this again. And uh, partway through the evening, he stopped and said, are you okay, Robert? And I said, no, I'm really not well. And he said, physically or emotionally? And I said, emotionally. And then quite uncharacteristically, he said, let's meet when we're finished tonight. So that was good. He saw it. and And then when I went in to see him, I actually feel a little teary as I'm talking about this. It was a very important encounter. I said um, uh, something has come up between us that unless we get a good resolution, I have to leave. Because my experience was your feedback today was not kind and was hurtful. And if you if you can do that, then this isn't a safe place for me. And he said, Oh, I know. I've been feeling bad about it since this morning. That was, I don't think it was inaccurate, but the way that I said it was really wrong. And I'm very sorry. And then and he also said, And several of the other people in the group then climbed onto my energy. And so that was really a bad, it was a bad feedback session for you. And I started bawling. Right? <laughs> and then he, uh, and then he shared something of his past that was kind of made sense of why he had lost perspective and been harsh. And the intimacy in our relationship went another several sub basements. It's like, oh, this is, a, this is a very useful, important relationship. And I had a lot of healing around that trauma, the, I did a guru trip early in my Buddhist thing. I, I fell under the spell of a Buddhist guru type for five years. Wow. Um, so that was a really great creation. My transference on him was of the harsh, mean elder male. And it brought it to the fore. And he, because of his skillfulness and sensitivity, and also my own willingness to confront it, uh, I managed to h- incorporate, or to to really to be more more whole around that issue. So that's an example of it, and that happens to me to, uh, many many times. That, that I say, and often it's not that I'm saying, not that I've done something quote wrong or bad. It's that I'm the recipient of transference. Mm.
0: I feel that. In our community, in our online community, there's um, people who had um, bad experiences, for instance, with uh, real life communities or with teachers. Some even, you know, work through a book by themselves to learn meditation. And to do that, what what would you give in a, as an advice for for uh, those people if if they feel hurt or even, you know, reluctant to to find a real life teacher? because they have such a bad experience.
1: That's a big question, isn't it? Yeah. Could you possibly do many people, many people never find a teacher. They don't even know to look. There's so, there's so little trust that teacher, that a teacher could be helpful or certainty that the teacher will harm them. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Hmm. Uh I mean there are s- some safeguards to to find a teacher who has a lineage and who has colleagues. Um there's there's a very useful when I came out of that cult that I was in the Buddhist cult, one of the things that the fellow who helped me get out gave me was uh the writings of Robert Lifton. And he has he was the fellow who he studied the Chinese brainwashing groups after the korean war and he has if you googled eight points of mind control groups that's a very helpful list because you can look at the group that you're joining or the teacher that you're approaching and see is any of this happening and the more of it that's happening the more dangerous it is
0: wow that's that's all advice because i feel the only way to equip um anyone who has problems with finding a teacher is, is to be skepti- skeptical, but along a, a guideline. Uh, uh, not to be over-skeptical, but also not to be um, un- under-skeptical.
1: I don't know if that's a word, but yeah. And And falling into a relationship with a teacher where one gets injured somewhat is a very common piece of the journey. Right. And isn't the end of the world? It can be really bad and difficult, but but we're. I've, I mean, so many of the teachers that I know have had that experience, and so many of the teachers I know have uh, awakened from their own mm, lack of integrity in some ways. Right. Yeah.
0: All right. Um I actually wonder now because you talked about this uh 5 years that you we, you were involved in a, a Buddhist cult. Um which which country was that? And do you want to share a little bit more about that because it, oh,
1: yeah. I've talked about it publicly all the time. I I've I've helped lots of people get out of mind control groups. So, uh yeah, the fellow's name was Sujata. He died uh, 25 years ago or so. He was um uh, a young American fellow who'd been a monk in Sri Lanka and then in India for a year or two. And then he came, he had a narcissistic personality disorder and he had the capacity to go around a group of people, 10, 20 people, uh, and tell each person something about their life that hurt them. And then he would say, "I'm, I'm pointing out your ego. And for those of us that were looking for somebody with magic powers, uh, we thought he was really quite something, and there wasn't much dharma around at that time. Uh, Jack and Joseph, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein hadn't started teaching in the states yet, and um, uh, I fell hook, line, and sinker. I'd lived in Europe for two years, and I went back to Europe and set up a lecture tour in ten different cities for him, in you know, London, Paris, uh, Berlin. Uh, all over the place. And we gathered 25 students and we rented a chateau in France for a one month retreat, which helped people a lot and also was a little weird. Uh, but I was there. I was with him for five years until his teacher, uh, Monindra, very famous Theravadan teacher came. And as soon as he came, I realized, Oh, I can leave him. I don't lose the Dharma. Uh, so then I left. Hmm. But And then I took, a, I took a long time to heal from that, and I learned a lot. And he, he truly did have a narcissistic personality disorder and um, was tragic for him. Yeah. It was a small group. You know, maybe, I don't know, really eight or nine or ten of us were in the close circle, and then people came and did retreats, and they, some people saw what was happening and said, I'm out of here people who were more streetwise didn't stay Hmm. yeah
0: yeah and yesterday i had to talk with someone about um again enlightenment but also with with greg we talked about meditation retreats and also about teachers and so central for me is is to remember that they are humans and to remember that humans are not outside of the laws of of you know uh, psychology and how the brain works and these kind of things and I th- for me that was so helpful to realize because for so long i was looking for i don't know what i was looking for a superhuman someone
1: someone you know, who is perfect a buddha you know. who was who ha- who didn't fart <laughs> you know who didn't have yeah. needs um and uh, I don't know, may, the end of the Arahat ideal. I, I went to Burma in 1979, 78. Uh, to, uh, to, and I spent a week with Tangpulu Sayada, who was kind of like the Dalai Lama of Burmese Buddhism at that time. And he was old. He was 82 years old. And he lived in Rangoon, and he came down to, to um what's the capital uh, no he, he lived in he, he lived in up, up country about 300 miles north he came to Rangoon and he had a temporary monastery and he got up in the morning at around 530 with the rest of us and then there was chanting and then um, we went out on alms round and he started at like six thirty or 7 o'clock meeting with people people would line up outside from then until lunch he would meet with people. And then there'd be a, an hour break or an hour and a half at lunch. And then from one o'clock till nine o'clock at night, he counseled people. They came in and they came in. He did that for three months. Wow. And that was all he was. He was this, this. and the story was that he was 12 years old or less, and he went into a cave where he stayed for 28 years. People fed him, but and he came out, he, be- he became the Tungpulu, which is the place. Sayada means honored. Uh, and he became pretty different. Right. And, and then there's this, you know, so anyway, but that's not who I am. And that's not who most Western teachers are. That we're kind of ordinary human beings who have devoted some time to do some cleaning up of our act and maybe who understand something about freedom and therefore, love and compassion. And that—that's. But, you know, uh, I—I'd like someone who would come along and pat me on the head and say, "Boink, you're free. You're you're fully." I'd like that. Yeah. So, of yeah. course, we go looking for that. I think some of us. If, if people
0: love uh, what they hear and they they enjoy your teachings, where can they find more? How can they get in contact with you? Um. I have a
1: website, surprise! (laughs) Uh, RobertBD.com, B E A T T Y.com. The meditation center is portlandinsight.org. I do meet with people over the net uh, to do that. My phone number and everything is on the website. And um, also, I have hundreds of hours of YouTube. If you go on YouTube and look for Robert BD Meditation, uh, our Sunday morning broadcast goes up there every week. And you can tune in Pacific Standard Time at 10 a.m. Um, I know, go to the website, portlandinsight.org, and there's a, there's a link there. And uh, you can tune in to the Portland Insight Meditation Community Sunday meeting. Perfect. Oh, and <laughs> I should yeah. say this. And my book is going to the publisher in the next uh, about a month. Oh, then there will be a book. I will be a published author.
0: <laughs> uh, that's really cool. Uh, real short, what is the title of the book or what's it about?
1: Mindful- shockingly, Mindfulness for a Happy Life, ah. Modern Perspectives on Ancient Teachings.
0: Looking forward to uh, read that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I, I learned so much. And I'm sure... Our listeners are very inspired to keep up their practice or start. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um,
1: have, a, have a good day. Uh, the listeners can't hear this, but I'm bowing to you. <laughs> I'm bowing to you too. Thank you so much. The all beings benefit from this conversation we had together.
0: If you enjoyed what Robert Beattie talked about, make sure to check out his website mentioned in the description of this episode. Shout out to our Patreons, Adrian Granlund, Kate Wolfhart, Chris Exam Gaw, Justin Seal, Chris Shrikumar, Tim Jupiter Girl X, Jay Catbell, and Candice. Thank you very much for supporting us. Remember to subscribe to our podcast if you enjoy this talk. Thank you for listening and have a great day.